Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Turns out the biggest and arguably the best question submitted to the 9-11 Commission for Answers came from a group of victim family members calling themselves the Family Steering Committee for the 9-11 Independent Commission. To their dismay and disappointment, the 9-11 Commission ignored most of the Family Steering Committee's questions and eventually ended the investigation with the bizarre, some say duplicitous conclusion that, quote, a failure of imagination, unquote, caused 9-11. In his recent book, titled Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored, Author Ray McGinnis pays powerful tribute to those families by documenting their questions, writing about the Family Steering Committee's efforts to get answers from the 9-11 Commission, and digging out many answers for the families himself. I recently interviewed McGinnis about the book and his findings. It seems like over and over they keep talking about the failures before 9-11, but the way that your research has been done, you could replace the word failure with crimes or malfeasance, yeah. and it would be more accurate. So, yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, you start with this the Family Steering Committee, okay, with um, the Family Steering Committee for the 9 11 Independent Commission, Kristen Breitweiser, Patty Casaza, Mindy Kleinberg, and Lori Van Auken. And they ask all these questions. And so, I, could you start just by detailing the setup of the 9 11 Commission and all the aspects of it that were rigged? Okay. Well, it's such an interesting group, the Family Steering Committee. And I would say one of the first surprises as I began to do my research is that it could have been a surprise that they would have had questions at all or that they would have uh, not stood shoulder to shoulder with the 9-11 Commission when the report came out and said, good job, thank you very much. You have of the dozen people on the Family Steering Committee, of those that I know of, five of them who spoke to the press and said how they voted in the year 2000, three out of five voted for the Bush-Cheney ticket. Wow. So, so, so we don't have like 12 people who are fired up radical Democrats ready to go, you know, uh, push and shove with the Bush administration. Patty Casaza voted for the Bush Cheney ticket. And, and it was only the stonewalling. That's the first thing. You know, they want to have an investigation just to make the nation safe. And so then there's suddenly 14 months of stonewalling. President Bush and Vice President Cheney say, well, we don't have any money. We're busy with the war on terror. It will, it will be a distraction. It'll, it'll only encourage the terrorists if we have an investigation. And so that's <laughs> yeah. What would the rationale, the encouragement be there for the terror? I mean, it's it, it, even even their their claims are, are are so ridiculous. So, you know, why would it encourage the terrorists to engage in more terrorism by uh, doing an investigation and, and making them accountable for what yeah. they do? 
purportedly an investigation would would show where the holes are in the in the defense system and make the nation more ready to to fend off another attack. But that didn't seem to be uh, something that they wanted to uh, to be curious about. And and then the one of the next encounters is the naming. Finally, in November of 2001 or 2002, President Bush says, OK, we'll have an investigation. Let's name Dr. Henry Kissinger to head this up. Uh, and then and then the families steering committee, most of them meet with Dr. Kissinger in his offices in the nice Tony apartments on Park Avenue or Madison Avenue. And Lori Van Auken asked the question because they want to make sure there's no conflict of interest. Dr. Kissinger, do you have any clients by the name of Bin Laden? And, and at that point, he uh, he spills the coffee all over the table falls halfway off the, the couch and blames it on a fake eye. And then he said he resigns the next day for whatever reason. Now, OK, so already we have Bush for a year has has tried to avoid having a commission or having any investigation. So already there's something fishy here. You don't want to know who exactly because, you know, you want to blame it on bin Laden right away. You don't want to know who all was involved. Then what do you do? You appoint Kissinger. Why would you appoint Kissinger? <laughs> A long history of secrecy and, and, you know, New York Times, Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, L.A. Times, all saying this is a guy who's got a long track record for pension, for secrecy and cover up. So not a good uh, uh, signal to the families about really seriously wanting to investigate. So you appoint him, you know, and they obviously uncover the fact that, you know, Kissinger is not the guy. So then what happens? So then then they then they appoint uh, Tom Keene who I think some of the families only much later learn is uh, happens to be on the board of at least one of the uh, companies that's part of the consortium that's uh, looking uh, eagerly at having a pipeline go across Afghanistan. I don't remember if I got that in the book, but that was, you know, one of the, so there he is. And then, then there's uh, more problematically Lee Hamilton, longtime Democrat uh, from Indiana, and many people who are not familiar with him, as many of the families wouldn't have been, would think, OK, great, he's a Democrat. He's going to be on our side, perhaps. And, and then they find out that uh, Lee Hamilton has, uh, was involved in the Iran-Contra scandal uh, commission. Uh, Oliver North told him that he hadn't lied. And, and Lee Hamilton said he, he couldn't believe that Oliver North would lie to his face. Um, he uh, said he never liked to go for the jugular. He was a longtime friend of both Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. Uh, uh, maybe he would be a part partial to not wanting to expose anything that might put his two long-term friends in the wrong light. So, and then they find out when they start to meet with, uh, with Hamilton and Keene uh, that uh, Lee Hamilton would not like to have any swearing of oaths, doesn't want to have any subpoenas, doesn't want to have any public hearings. And so, uh, you know, uh, Lee, Kristen Breitweiser says she took an instant disliking, you know, like it's just really problematic in terms of what do you want to do in terms of getting to the bottom of something when you don't want to investigate anything. Yeah. So, OK, so <clears throat> already you have the fix in with these two guys, but then they bring on Philip Zelikow. Yeah. So talk <laughs> about as executive director of the commission who's in charge of actually 
making everything, implementing what the commission is going to do. And, and also, I think it's important to talk about how they how they described their mission. So in that way, they were limiting their mandate so that it really wasn't a real investigation. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. Like on the one hand, you have uh, Commissioner, I think, Tim Romer and, and Jim Thompson that, that echoed the families about wanting to sort of, you know, leave no stone unturned in, in some uh, opening statements on the first uh, uh, public hearing in late March of 2003. And then you have uh, uh, Philip Zellico, who's uh, long, who's also co-authored a book with Condoleezza Rice, who co-wrote uh, a, a book about uh, uh, President Kennedy's uh, uh, thoughts about Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis, but the way he torques things and how he reports things, uh, the Atlantic Monthly and some other uh, people who looked at, at it said, look, Zelico is making the statements of the president say the opposite of what they in fact said, if you go to the original sources. So here you've got someone who is who is turning things 180 degrees away from what they actually mean and misstating and misquoting, uh, you know, and then he's also involved in helping to write up or principally write up the uh, whole uh, policy regarding preemptive war and going into Iraq. So he, uh, well, to me, he was the primary fixer on yeah. the on the commission. And so let, let's talk about the things that he did to fix things so that uh, the report would come out with essentially a ridiculous conclusion, like it was all a failure of imagination. Yeah. So there are people who are, you know, there's a, there's Zellico and then senior counsel Ernst May. Uh, are you know running the show, Zellico in principle, and you've got 78 other 9/11 uh, Commission staff, and some of them are real crackerjacks. Dana Lessman and Mike Jacobson had been part of the 9/11, uh, the joint 9/11 inquiry with the Senate and Congress, and uh, and they wanted to look at, at different uh, information, uh, subpoena information from the Department of Defense and CIA and FBI. And Zellico kept saying, oh, no, we can't do that because we don't want to make anyone mad or upset with us. And, and when, uh, when Dana Lessman had, she already had uh, clearance with the CIA, she went off and got some, some files that she wanted to get to, to do a good job. And then he fired her as a sign that nobody else is supposed to go and, and do any kind of... Uh, <laughs> brown nosing or what are go, going into it in in, in well in no yeah. anybody gathering inconvenient information um is is not going to be uh well received and uh, i mean the fact that he fired her and and what she was going after i believe was uh information on saudi uh saudi uh involvement in yes. 9 11, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and boy, throughout this whole thing, the Saudis are protected a thousand percent by everybody. Yeah, by it's everybody. A, it's just you know? incredible. And then, of course, uh, the, uh, <laughs> at the top of the heap, uh, Zalico and Ernst May co author, uh, they, cr they create an outline for the 9 11 Commission report chapter headings and subheadings in uh, in the month of March 2003, before the first hearing happens. Uh, the co-chairs, Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton, see it, 
And they all agree, the four of them, that they should keep this secret. So nobody else uh, in the 9-11 commission, uh, commissioners, uh, none of the family steering committee members, none of the other 9-11 commission staff are aware of this outline until it comes out in the spring of 2004 that there's an outline that's fairly prescriptive around what they think that they're going to find. But so often what you want to do when you do an investigation is you just start to investigate and you have witnesses that come forward and they might give you some new information. Then you have to go in some whole new directions, which means you have to write some whole new chapters with whole new chapter headings. But instead, they, they, uh, they, they corralled it in such a way that they ended up being able to say it was a failure of imagination because that was their, their, their assumption. That... I, I don't know of any investigation of something as big as 9-11 where people died and there was all this death and destruction where it would be acceptable for an investigation to end with just, oh, well, it was a failure of imagination. You know, I mean, that that makes no sense to me. And and the interesting thing about Zelikow, too, was he, he seemed to have been in constant contact with Condoleezza Rice, right? Yes. And who was somebody else in and the Car White House? Car Carl Rowe, the senior and Carl White House counsel. Yeah. <laughs> he was, so, I mean, already that fix was in. And, and nobody at the time after when the report came out, nobody really reported that right off the bat. Nobody talked about how the whole thing, you know, about all the, rigory that that went on i mean first of all let's start with the fact that bush when he set up the commission gave them a ridiculous budget you know you compared it to the monica Lewinsky budget which was 50 million this one they gave only three million and these are classic tactics containment exercise tactics okay you give them Absolutely. a small give them a small budget okay you you put fixers in the top positions, okay, so that they can filter everything and make sure nobody gets out of line. Like he, you know, fired his his own assistant for bringing in that information about the Saudis, okay. And then you um, you cherry pick your witnesses. Yes, you cherry pick your witnesses, and you also uh, make sure. I mean, there's there's two different aspects to the to the to how this is developing. On the one hand, you have 12 public hearings with 18 days of public hearings. And, and the families are seeing, along with anyone else who's going to these public hearings, the witnesses that are brought forth. And then you have eight teams of commission staff interviewing most of the witnesses in private behind closed doors. But nonetheless, you still have witnesses coming forth and you have what are called government minders, people who are higher up in their department CIA, FBI, FAA, DOD, and there they are sitting right beside them, the witness, or standing behind them, perhaps with their hand on the shoulder. And if the witness starts to say something in response to a question the commissioner asks, that uh, minder might interrupt and answer the question themselves. And the witness is just sitting there knowing that they shouldn't say anything more. Or they're, or they're censoring themselves because they're thinking, how is this going to go back at, back at my, in my department if I say what I know? 
the minder thing was was really very disturbing to me. I, I don't understand. Couldn't could not the commission have said, uh, you minders, we didn't invite you to come and testify. This guy is testifying. Let him testify on his own. I mean, was that not an option for them to to demand that? It should have been an option to demand that. And there were some public statements by by Tom Keene and, and Lee Hamilton that this was a concern of the of the commissioners. However, as with many things throughout, uh, they didn't want to play, quote, hardball with the White House and so or with any of the other agencies. And so. It's all part of a long trajectory of just like they don't want to subpoena very often, well, hardly at all throughout the length of the commission that they want to subpoena because they didn't want anyone to be upset with them. They didn't want to uh, uh, to make the, the White House, uh, you know, on the on the put on their bad books. And so it's, it's softball that, questions. That is not the role of an investigation to worry about whether you're going to hurt somebody's feelings or make them angry. I mean, your first and. And that's uh, again, I want to go back to how they how they how they really uh, put a limit on what their investigative mandate was. I mean, I think it was was it Keen who said we're not here to ascribe blame. Uh, we we want to know what what the failures were, because what we what we really what we're really mandated to do is figure out how to avoid this happening again. And I just thought to myself, what kind of an investigation is that? When yeah, you that, do an investigation, you're trying to figure out who did it so you can hold them accountable. And that's how it doesn't happen again. You get, you hold them accountable and then it doesn't happen again because they're in jail forever or whatever. But if, to say, oh, we just want to know what we can do so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's confounding to a whole range of families because the families that are coming forward that are spearheading this investigation that are the family steering committee members and others that are part of affiliate groups that are that the families steering committee members represent like the families of September 11th the FOS 11 which is a very establishment group. You've got Robin Weiner, who is on the family steering committee, who's with this FOS 11. She's the president of the Institute for Recycling and Scrap Industries. Uh, you've got Carrie Lemack, whose mother, Judy LaRock, died in an airplane. And she later on uh, uh, becomes the president of the Camilla uh, Group, which is a national security business. And so these are, you know, Robin Weiner had been involved as a lawyer with legal and political matters in Congress. So you've got some very establishment people here. But nonetheless, Stephen Push, who was with the FOS 11, uh, says, you know, he says, I don't think I don't believe in conspiracy theories, he says on the 31st of March 2003. But there were problems. People fell down on the job. We want to know who fell down on the job. And, and you've got this pushback from Lee Hamilton and, and Tom Keene saying, oh, no, we, you know, we, we don't want to blame anybody. And, and so it's crazy. But what they do want to do is blame someone, which is principally Osama bin Laden. And, and they're saying we, we don't need to really, you know, we already know who, who we need to write about. We're not presenting the proof because oh, that's classified, right? Isn't that when they were saying, hey, provide as because the Taliban themselves said, hey, we'll deliver him. We'll deliver him to an international court. Just send us the proof. Just send us what proof you have that he did it. 
it's a very confusing story about how this goes. And I think a lot of people missed quite a few of the key headlines that unfolded from September into, into the new year of 2002. Because at first, uh, Bin Laden says in a press release around the 16th of September, I didn't do it. And then uh, Colin Powell, Secretary of State, goes before a Sunday morning news show and says, well, we're going to have a white paper and we'll we'll show the world the proof. And then Ari Fleischer in the White House press room the next day tells the press, I think Colin Powell is mistaken. He didn't say anything about, quote, white paper, even though he did roll the tape. Uh, and so uh, people in the press gallery said, so you're just asking us to trust us, which is what they were doing. And then and then there's questions, you know, Dick Cheney says, yes, bin Laden did it. And then uh, the Taliban says, as you as you mentioned, that uh, well, we'll hand over Bin Laden to an international court, The Hague, or something. If you have some evidence of some sort, and Bush just says we don't need evidence. We know he's guilty. And later on in the in the in the winter, there's a, a lucky break for the seems the Pentagon, the U.S. forces are in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, and somebody finds a probably, you know, a house in a war zone that I don't know how badly damaged the house is or how much rubble and, and stuff is falling around in the in the kitchen and the, you know, grenades going off in the living room. But anyway, a miracle of miracles, a wonderful videotape that says Bin Laden confession tape just happens to be sitting there, perhaps in a coffee table, and they take it back to uh, to America and the Pentagon releases it on the 13th of December and a much stockier uh, uh, bin Laden with a much bigger face, maybe even a bigger skull who uh, wears lots of jewelry, uh, starts saying, yes, it was me. But even The Guardian in the UK and other, other mainstream papers say that it seems too convenient that this would be the case. Uh, or well, the it's obvious that it was a bogus tape. But, and and it, says, it says a lot that they took that tape and presented it to the American public as something genuine. Yeah, well, you know, I... I've spoken recently to to journalists who are convinced that that tape is legit. Oh, my God. OK, well, I mean, here's here's something that struck me overall. And, and in, in, a, in as our conversation progresses, you know, I, I I just want you to keep this in mind, in a sense, it seems like the family members and a lot of people like the everybody involved in this treated um, the commission members, even though they were engaging in all kinds of, I mean, really investigative malfeasance. That's what I would call it. They keep treating them respectfully. They keep sort of giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I have to tell you something as somebody who has done a, a, a lot of, not a lot, because these investigations into high-level malfeasance, are, you know, take a lot of time and effort. But one thing I know is that people at that level who are covering up and the, the perpetrators who are at the higher levels even, that's what they depend on. They depend on being treated with some kind of reverence because they have that power. Yeah, okay? oh, that, 
Yeah, that's that's part of the dynamic. I can just imagine. I mean, Kristen Breitweiser, who gave a brilliant testimony to the joint uh, Senate and, and Congress 9-11 inquiry that really broke open the, the pressure in, in the Capitol for an investigation in 2002, September, is at the time that uh, her husband dies in the South Tower, a mother with a two-year-old a suburban housewife in New Jersey. And, and so to move from that place of being a, a stay-at-home mom to suddenly finding yourself in Washington, D.C., testifying before lawmakers, uh, trying, to, trying to figure out who these people are, it's really tough. And I think also, though, you've got... Um, yeah, but tell, talk about what she said. Yeah. Talk well, about what Kristen said, because that was interesting. Well, she said that, uh, that the, you know, it... The, the explanation the government has said, you know, that, you know, we know what's happened, but what's, uh, you know, what lay behind our husband's attacks is not so explainable. Why, why did people get into planes with, with illegal weapons, box cutters and mace? Uh, why did planes fly all, all over the, uh, uh, the skies without any uh, military response? Interception when before that, you know, every, every plane that, you know, veered off course was, you know, was, was, was accompanied or intercepted in in minutes, you know. Yes. Yeah, but all which, of a sudden, in this case, no. Yes. Uh, it, it, from the 1958 until September 10th, it was true that the U.S. Air Force was quote as their motto says, guarding the nation's skies. But on the 11th of September, they were zero for four. Even though there are pilots who were interviewed and and sent off, it seems way off the east coast of Connecticut and, and, uh, and New York, uh, sat in a Long Island, just in the wrong place and saying, if only we'd known uh, where the planes were, we'd have, we would have intercepted them, you know, because they train for this uh, five to six times a month to always intercept planes. Uh, so, go ahead. Yeah, so, so you've got, you've got uh, people trying to figure out, I can just imagine they're, they're wanting to, to, to not, there was a lot of uh, wording about, they don't want to be partisan. They don't want to come across as a, as a group of 12 and the family steering committee of being partisan. And yet they do issue a, uh, a report card in September of 2003, after much frustration that the 9-11 commission now is nine months into its life and has hardly gotten anything done, only one subpoena, uh, uh, hardly anyone swearing under oath, uh, lots of problem, problems about the minders and so on. So they criticize, you know, the, the 9-11 Commission gets a very poor uh, grade on all, almost all manners, uh, secrecy and such. And they also uh, try uh, to get uh, the, the issue of press release asking that Philip Zellico be asked to resign as executive director. Because then, of, of conflict of interest. Because of conflict of interest. And then, of course, Lee Hamilton and, and, and Tom Keene ever, ever keeping the sunny side up say, oh, no, there's nothing wrong here. Let's, let's keep, uh, let's keep uh, Zellico. They also, at the point where Max Cleland of Georgia uh, uh, gives up in, in, out of a frustration with the whole way the whole thing's going, because he was the, one of the commissioners pushing for a real inquiry into whether or not uh, the attacks on September 11th happened in part because the president had wished to go to war against Iraq as, uh, as uh, Paul O'Neill, former Treasury Secretary's uh, memoirs show that Bush said, find me a way to get into war in Iraq in well, January of 2001. The, first of all, you can go back as far as the project for a new American century. They're, you know, they're rebuilding America's defenses. 
everybody involved, every, everybody in a key position in the Bush administration, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people in key positions in the Bush administration were signatories to this. And, you know, they were talking about short of a, a, a Pearl Harbor type uh, a situation where, you know, shock and awe, whatever, we will not be able to implement our plan very quickly. And then right after 9-11, you know, Rumsfeld says, oh, yeah, he write, wrote a little note to himself about, oh, we were worried about a Pearl Harbor situation. Bush talks about Pearl Harbor. It's almost like they're jumping off the PNAC pages, you know, right, right into now reality. And boy, I got to tell you, that smells. That smells. It smells a lot. And Beverly Eckert, whose husband, Sean Rooney, died in the South Tower, said that she was very concerned when she learned about the uh, uh, the P the PNAC and having, you know, Bolton, John Bolton, Wolfowitz, Cheney, Zelico, you know, all of, you know, eight or nine people who are key in involved now in the Bush cabinet, uh, all signatories to thinking that it would be somehow, quote, a good idea for some sort of a, a, a new Pearl Harbor to happen. And so the, the families did ask uh, for, you know, they wanted people who were who were signing the PNAC to come before the 9-11 Commission and explain themselves in relation to that point exactly. But of course, the 9-11 Commission ignored that. And as they also ignored at the point that, that Max Cleland resigned, uh, the Family Steering Committee put forward a number of people's names, uh, which actually would have been the responsibility of uh, Tom Daschle to name the replacement as Democrat at that point. And so Kristen Breitweiser on the Family Steering Committee was one of the people that they uh, nominated foremost to replace uh, Max Cleland. But the uh, the replacement uh, was actually Bob Carey, who I thought of as a good guy in part because years later he he said on a radio show in New York that he thought that there should be a permanent 9/11 commission to 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 look at the things that are uh, have not been you know the stones that are, have not been looked under. However, at the time that he was named, he was a member of the committee for the. Um, Invasion of Iraq, basically, invasion but it wasn't. Iraq. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, of course, the exact name escapes me, but, you know, commi committee for the, the committee regime change. But that's what the committee was about, yeah, yeah regime you know. change in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, me and meanwhile, uh, Zelikow is putting on his witness list uh, people like Lori Milroy, you know, who, again, a propagandist for let's go to Iraq. I mean, they, they steered... A lot of their expert witnesses were about talking about Iraq and, you know, it, they couldn't even get a connection between Saddam Hussein and 9-11. And but uh, at some point, I think Zelikow made a statement where he tried to do that in the commission, say, well, you know, Saddam Hussein was, uh, you know, these terrorists did try and get in touch with Saddam Hussein at some point. But um, they, he had her on and a couple of other people on but no saudis no 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 saudis which is a typical that's the old look here not there cover-up technique yes and and also uh, significantly in in late march of of 2003 it's just 10 or 11 days after the iraq war has begun and so interesting that the people coming forth on the 
first, second days of the public hearings are people who are what Lori Van Auken, whose husband Kenneth died in the North Tower, said, uh, she, she said to Zelko that he was involved in a sales pitch for the Iraq war. And, and so there's this, you know, I mean, you know, there are people testifying, I think uh, Lori Mulroy uh, saying that Saddam was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. But thankfully, he didn't say that he, that Saddam Hussein was responsible for the death of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah, right. So let's let's talk about how much of a control freak Zelikow was. Not only did he fire that his assistant for, you know, getting that those documents, but he would not allow anybody to respond to the family members phone calls he had to be uh, he controlled uh, he controlled who and how those calls were returned. Correct. Yes, he was. That, that, and that, that certainly went on for quite a while. It, it may have been challenged at some point, but certainly that was what what he put in place for quite a while. He also ordered his his administrative secretary, Karen Heithotter, who'd, who'd had a previous uh, background in, in, in working for diplomats, American diplomats in, in Europe. Uh, he didn't want her to keep a log of the phone calls he was receiving or making including Carl Rove. Well, that's to- why she cause, did she uh, did she uh, I think she talked about that or something. And then all of a sudden she was uh, but she did continue doing it, didn't she? She did do that in secret. Uh, he didn't know it. But uh, I think uh, another person uh, who was involved uh, on the on the staff said, just go ahead and do it. I think it's important. The general counsel, um, Dan, I forget his last name, but uh, so another thing he did, Zelikow, was control what material the commission members were allowed to review before they interviewed witnesses, right? Yes. And, and uh, yeah, so you've got uh, the, the PDF, uh, the uh, August 6th PDF uh, uh, President uh, Bush receives a warning about bin Laden about to strike and other things that maybe just Zelico and then Jamie uh, uh, Gorlick, uh, with the, in the Clinton administration, who who's allowed to look at things, but nobody else, uh, none of the other 9/11 commissioners are allowed to see any of the documents. They can't take any minutes about what they're seeing. They just have to. I'm not even sure how much they could even say about what they've seen. And so it's just it's all the secrecies, which makes it very they hobble the the capacity for them to really investigate. Uh, well. It's not an investigation. If you're controlling everything that they're, if you're controlling all the witnesses, if you're controlling even the background information, background research that you get on the witnesses, if you're controlling, if you're not allowing them to to look at um, secret documents, okay, because that was another thing. Oh, you can't look at the secret documents, okay? So basically, their view, and they, of course, I'm sure they all knew this. They all knew that they, didn't they? I mean, Ben Veniste asked a few, some good questions every once in a while, but I think they all knew that they were in some kind of huge containment exercise. I mean, the constraints were beyond ridiculous. I mean, you can't call it an investigation anymore with those constraints, I don't think. No, and and you have... Uh, the uh, the spectacle of p- 
public statements to the press by 9-11 commissioners that are deferential and respectful uh, to the Family Steering Committee. Uh, uh, Once they've received their many hundreds of questions uh, to be posed to the president, vice president, agencies, and so on, uh, they're told, the press is told that by some of the 9-11 commissioners that these questions that the Family Steering Committee has given us uh, will be a roadmap for how we will do our inquiry. But yet they only answer 9% of the questions with any seriousness, uh, dabble in a few others, which which would include a question uh, Secretary Rumsfeld was asked, was Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, did you scramble aircraft to defend the Pentagon? And he looks around at the clock and the wall and the color of the wall, perhaps, and, and his coffee. And then he simply repeats the question, did I, did I scramble uh, fighter jets to, uh, to defend the Pentagon? And then Tom Keene bangs the gavel and says, time's up. So that question that he answered by simply repeating the question, not saying anything about it, could be counted as a question that was addressed. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, you know, and, yeah. and Tom Keene, uh, that the Tom Keene stepped in and and stopped the t- the clock so that he he wouldn't answer that question to me yeah. is quite is quite shocking. Yeah. Too. Yes. So it's just all of this continual uh, um, obstruction of getting to the truth. Uh, Lori Van Auken and others comment on how the family uh, the the 9-11 commissioners often will have somebody coming before them for perhaps an hour. There's 10 of them. They have five minutes each. It might be extended. That's ridiculous. You know. Yeah. So, so they're doing things like if I'm having my interview with you, let's pretend that I'm a 9-11 commissioner and you're a witness. And I will not ask you something about your long history and say writing, uh, how did you decide, decide to write into the buzzsaw? I'll just say instead, that's a really great bookshelf you have behind you, Christina. Yes, yes. They ate up the time with, with banter. Yes, that's again, that's another tactic. I've seen it. uh, I've seen it before on major uh, like the POW hearings. I, you know, the the hearings into the POWs who were left behind after Vietnam. You you, you saw a lot of that during that, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that uh, I thought was very interesting was how the report this this was shocking to me that um, the report is based mostly on the uh, on the testimony of tortured detainees. Yes, and everybody knows that torture is not a good way to get the truth out of anybody. Could you could you talk about that? Yeah, so I mean, Harper's Magazine, I think Benjamin DeMott, uh, and also, interestingly, MSNBC back in 2007 or 8, had scathing uh, comments about, about the, uh, what a fraud the 9-11 Commission report was, in their, in their words, because of, of so much of, of, the, of the key story in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the report, uh, which tells the story of the, of the hijackers, depends on confessions of detainees who were tortured in Guantanamo and other places. And so, you know, I mean, any one of us might confess to having been a hijacker ourselves if, if, if we uh, had enough fingernails ripped off of our, of our 
you know, fingers or, or toenails off of our toes. Uh, it, it's it's uh, crazy to think that this is a way to get what nothing that would ever stand up in court. Well, it's not crazy if you're running a cover up and you need information that fits into an outline that you've already written before the hearings are even over. Because what you're looking for, and since the CIA is obviously on your side trying not to, you know, the CIA, my God, you know, I mean, first of all, they gave these terrorists the visas. (laughs) I mean, you know, they strong armed these uh, uh, these embassies to give these terrorists the visas. Uh, They did, you know, they they kept the FBI from getting information about the terrorists being in the United States. And now now their torture, uh, their torture testimony is is basically the the bulk of what's used for this, uh, which makes sense because it would go along with the narrative that Zelikow was trying to sell. I'm failure of imagination narrative. OK, um, so I find that. I find that very interesting. Yeah, that's that's the testimony that they want to to, to help uh, put the whole thing together, the framework for the 9-11 Commission. But what they don't want to include is whistleblower testimony. Um, the families uh, had many people coming to them saying, uh, we need you to get us subpoenaed because if we're subpoenaed, we have protection. Because if we just waltz in there on our own steam, we could have some retribution back in our department. But if we're subpoenaed, then we have to testify and say what we know. And so one of the people that did come forward was Sibel Edmonds, who they dragged into before the, the 9-11 commissioners. And she did testify behind closed doors before like two or three hours. And she told them apparently that the government knew uh, regarding the attacks, that they knew what the method of the attacks would be, namely planes. They knew the date, September 11th, and they knew the targets, the Pentagon and the, and, and the World Trade Center. Now, maybe somebody else uh, in, in, a, in an open trial would come forward and, and argue that that was not the case somehow. But that kind of compelling testimony should certainly be part of what the 9-11 report shows since they interviewed her. But they never included her testimony at all. Yeah, I mean... I I actually made a list of these people and I wonder if they I wonder if they have a list of all the witnesses that they wanted to see um, uh, interviewed, because I'd love to see that list. I'd love to interview those people. You said they didn't want to hear from Mark Burton, senior analyst for NSA. FBI counterintelligence agent John Cole, he had information connecting Afghanistan, Pakistan and 9-11 at Pakistan in 9-11, but commission didn't want. They had Sibel. They had Mike German, who was working a case on uh, terrorist cell in Florida, who discovered FBI senior management had falsified records, failed to properly handle evidence, falsely discredited witnesses, and failed to adhere to laws and regulations about electronic surveillance. Colleen Rowley, of course, yeah. was trying to get into Musawi's Mos- uh, computer, and she was uh, smacked down by her superiors. Baru Sarshar, FBI language specialist. And Sibel Edmonds, by the way, was an FBI translator. Yeah, yeah. And then Robert Wright, who was investigating terrorist uh, financing, who was stifled by his superiors. These are the types of people that they didn't want to hear from. No, they didn't want to hear from them. And and. 
as a family member, I mean, you've, you've got, you know, every day you've got, you know, one less person at, at the meal table every day to remind you that you want to get to the bottom of this. And they're also uh, being swamped with all of the headlines that everybody who sits down at the end of the day to watch TV or read their magazine or, or, or listen to their radio or, or read their favorite newspaper absorbs all these different headlines. And there's all kinds of different narratives going in so many different directions. And investigator Paul Thompson, who thankfully compiled the initially the 9-11 uh, timeline, which the families discovered and then were able to look at to help them uh, amplify the questions that they wanted to ask the 9-11 commission to, to address. Uh, he says that so often what happens is you have a lead story on the front page, but that story might not be as important as the, as the story that's on page B12 or D7. Uh, and often people don't necessarily even get past the front page unless they want to go to the comics. So, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, one thing was clear. And first of all, the press just went along. That was all official source reporting. You know, whatever the official source said, that's what we were going to report. That was which is not journalism, by the way, yeah. because generally you have to make sure what the official source has said is true or not. If it's not true, you have to report that. But none of that was done. But um, which is why I did into the buzzsaw, by the way. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> but. One of the things, I, I, this is what I thought was brilliant in this book, too, was how you created these straight lines. Um, you know, there are certain issues that are huge issues, huge questions. And really, you, you showed what went on in such a way that a straight line was drawn to all the culprits. It was very interesting. For example... I found it very interesting, uh, your section about all those games, those um, simulations, the, uh, the war games. The war games, yeah. That were uh, going on uh, during 9-11, okay? And what you come away realizing is that earlier in the year, Dick Cheney had been given the authority to decide and authorize all war games. Yes. Earlier in the year. Uh, flights that normally would be up in the sky at any given time in the domestic airspace, you have as well all these other phantom planes. And so the radar operators aren't sure what's a real plane and what isn't, as well as the military fighter pilots themselves. And then you have the wonderful coincidence of a number of different uh, war games. Fertile Rice was one of them. And okay, you had Vigilant Guardian. Yes. And, and before... You, what's interesting is you write that there were an unprecedented number of war games on 9-11. And some of these war games were run before, the year before, but at different times. Before, for example, Vigilant Guardian used to be run, it was a hijack exercise, used to be run in October. Yes. Okay? And, and uh, now, it's, now it happens on September 11. And then you had two field training exercises, Amalgam Warrior and Amalgam Virgo. Okay. Amalgam Warrior typically held in April and October. 
this oh, it's time just, it's September. It's okay? another coincidence. And Global Guardian, you know, uh, and Apollo Guardian also run on the morning of September 11. And the weird thing about all this is they, the paperwork or the, for, for these uh, exercises all had pictures of bin Laden on them as if they kind of already knew, you know, like a, like this, this is part of, okay, this is going to happen. And bin Laden is the man. Yes. And, and, and so there's, uh, on the one hand, you have government official statements by Condoleezza Rice when she goes before the 9-11 Commission saying that uh, nobody could ever have imagined uh, planes uh, hitting buildings. And yet you have several of these war games, Fertile Rice, another one, that have uh, on the cover of the manual for these war games set to happen on September 11th or earlier, uh, just happen to have bin laden's face and the twin towers and other things and and planes on on the on the front cover of of the of the manual so you know is it just is it it's hard to believe that that's just a coincidence or or someone's being psychic no it's it's not a coincidence and and not only did condoleezza Wright rice lie when she said that i mean she also knew about the pdf i think it was ben venice who confronted her and said hey you know, the PDF, a uh, presidential daily uh, brief. Yes. PDB, that uh, said bin Laden is uh, bin Laden is going to strike and specifically mentioned uh, World Trade Center in New York, you know, planes going into world specifically mentioned that scenario. Yeah. So so she she, you know, she clearly, clearly was lying. So I just found it so interesting that Cheney was the one who walked. So to me, if I'm an investigator, my reptilian brain is saying, oh, I get it. What you do is you have all these exercises going on at the time that this thing is going to happen so that everybody's confused and they, they can't respond because they have all these extra things on their radar. They don't know what's real or what's sim. And the general Eberhard, Yes. Norad, who was who was was asked, please take out these simulations so that we can see what's going on. Didn't do it until 10 o'clock. No, Didn't he. So he go ahead. He, talk about he him. Was, he was uh, he was busy doing other things like that morning. Uh, the, the North Towers hit the South Towers hit. He's in the uh, in the NORAD command uh, in, I think, Wyoming. Is it? Uh, or yeah, Colorado? Cheyenne. Cheyenne. Yeah, Cheyenne. Yeah, yeah Cheyenne. And so uh, the towers are hit. And then after that happens, at about just around 930 or so, he decides it's a good time to go for a drive in the park. Yeah. You know, for 45 yeah. minutes. So he, he says that things have, quote, quieted down. There's nothing quiet about what's going on on the TV screens. People are gasping. People well, are jumping out of buildings and, and, and there's nothing quiet about that at all. But he says, oh, I think now I can just carry on. It's a good time for coffee. Break. Well, because he'd done his job. Yeah, yeah. He'd done his job. He'd let the simulate, you know, he made sure those simulations were all there, that there was all this confusion. So they, were, they, they, they couldn't respond in a timely yeah. fashion. They didn't know what was real and what wasn't real. And people don't even realize this. They don't realize this. Okay, so 
And he he not only does he do that, but apparently at the Pentagon the day before he set the alert levels. uh, You know, that defends that uh, there's a system Infocon that uh, defends the Pentagon by letting the Pentagon Communications Network know if there are any incoming hostile planes. He set that alert level uh, prior to 9 p.m. on September 10th at its lowest level. Yeah, yeah. So he he deliberately hampered the Pentagon's ability to, you know, to see a, you know, an independent. Yeah. Did the commission ever talk about any of these exercises and the problems with them? They, they weren't they weren't interested. They didn't get around to it. <laughs> they didn't talk about it. No. OK, so. Yeah, and you've got people in the uh, I mean, Jamie Gorlick is asked. They're asking questions of the NORAD generals. And you have people who have lost uh, family members firefighters saying talk about the war games just get one of us to go up there and at, let ask some tough questions and uh and then they're told you're being rude this is one of a number of times when people are being told they're rude uh, if you keep asking you know how all these outbursts you'll be removed from the from the uh, chambers basically it's rude to run a real investigation i mean that's the message uh this is where i sometimes talk people talk about you know, any kind of book that offers any dissent or questioning of the official narrative. And the official narrative is seen as simply uh, uh, the, the trustworthy narrative. And any, any narrative questioning it is called a conspiracy theory. And yet, uh, I think of those who uh, ascribe to the official account as coincidence theorists, because there are so many coincidences that just pile up. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Mindy Kleinberg in her testimony before the 9-11 Commission, itemizing so many of these things with the, with the hijackers and everything says, you know, one cannot call this luck. Well, look, uh, if you're an in, if you're a real I, if you're a real investigator, I, there are two things I really don't care about. I, you can you can say conspiracy. You can say whatever. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the evidence I'm going to see what the witnesses have to say. I want to see where those two things come together. Okay, if the evidence is there, it's there. And and there are certain conclusions. I mean, how can you not draw the conclusion that all of a sudden the vice president who wants to get to Iraq and really on 9-11 and Rumsfeld writing his memo, figure out, you know, let's grab as much information as we can. Let's try and gather all information, whatever, you know, especially so we can get to Iraq or, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But anyway, they're talking about going to Iraq. OK, so the president, the, the vice president is in charge of authorizing these these um, war games, an unprecedented number he authorizes for 9-11. You know, people can't respond because they're all confused and this and that. And then next thing you know, you know, uh, this guy, you know, Everhard doesn't want to stand down, doesn't want to turn off the Sims until it's all done. And he disappears. Rumsfeld disappears from <laughs> Rumsfeld claims he wasn't told about anything except, you know, before the day before he comes forward and says, oh, by the way, there's uh was it three point two million trillion or two point three trillion? 
yeah. trillion uh, missing uh, from the Pentagon's uh, budget. We can't account for it. And lo and behold, oh, on 9-11, oh, what, what part of the Pentagon gets hit? <laughs> All the auditors. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the auditors are killed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you know. It, well, it was not so much uh, from that from that story, it would seem it wasn't so much the uh, uh, the 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 way of life of Americans, but their auditing practices that most upset the terrorists. Why? Why? If 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 they really are able, as some contend, to pilot the plane the way it was done with loop de loops all over the place and and go into the Pentagon somewhere and do some damage, surely they would have figured out where would be a more uh, destructive place to, 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 sh to aim that plane than the auditing department, which well, is investigating two billion plus uh, trillion plus. Trillion. Yeah. Exactly. Now let's turn to the FAA. Let's talk about Mr. Michael Canavan, hijack coordinator. Okay. So that was the, the day he had to go off to Puerto Rico. Yeah. And who was left in his place? I don't. Oh, I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. You know. So I mean, this whole thing. I, I. This whole thing. I just. Okay. So let's talk about. Let's talk about the money. Following oh, yeah. the money. Let's talk about those put options, and what yeah. you uh, and and the scenario. Again, things are pointing to to Bush among other people and the CIA. So yeah, you, you've got uh, you've got people who are involved in I think Marsh McClellan and uh, they are in the uh, bullseye of one of the planes, I think the North Tower. And uh, and they've got uh, they're doing a lot of the trading that's involved in in the options. Uh, people are, are betting on the airline stocks to fall dramatically. And these uh, bets are happening uh, up to three weeks uh, over a three-week period prior to September 11th, uh, one of the people who's uh, who's involved is uh, the number three person in the CIA, Buzzy Conrad. Cron Cronberg, yeah. Buzzy Cronberg. Yeah, 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 then, yeah, yeah. And then there's also um, uh, the president's cousin, Wirt Walker III. Uh, who this, the FBI decides doesn't need to even be interviewed. Uh, even though he's connected to the Carlisle group and uh, there have been Latin members on the Carlisle group board. Yeah, so I mean, Buzzy Krongard, first of all, was CIA and he was appointed, wasn't he? He was appointed by Bush uh, to be deputy. What was he? What did Bush appoint him to be? I'm trying to remember now. But, you know, he has a long and, and he was part of uh, the bank. He, yeah, was a, an, he was uh, on the board of Bankers Trust, which was connected, which was owned by Deutsche Bank that 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 uh, took care of these options, that managed these options. Right. Bankers Trust managed these options, these put options. And very interesting, the company, uh, what's it called again? Convar. No, no, McClellan and McClellan, uh, Marsh McClellan, Marsh yeah. McClellan, who is their risk management guy? Oh, good old Paul Bremer, Paul Bremer, yeah. who ends up becoming the czar of Iraq, of the Iraq uh, 
of the Iraq, uh, Iraq war, uh, the uh, once one, the he's guiding occupation. The whole occupation. He's in charge of the Iraq, Paul Bremer. I just, I, and the, I'll tell you, the way you connected these dots was like absolutely fascinating. Yes. And, and Wirt Walker, who is connected to Marvin Bush. Yeah, and the security company involved in the World Trade Center and uh, Dulles and some other places that got hit that day. Yes. And, and so what happened, explain it, what happened with how that information, how that information was pulled out of uh, the rubble, to, so to speak, by that German company. Yeah. So there's a German company, I think Convar, and they, uh, they had just developed some very brand new technology. I mean, it just, it's just, it's a fluke almost, because if they hadn't uh, developed it, uh, it, they would never have been able to save any of the information. But uh, as it happened, they did have this new technology. And so they're able to save the information and, and, and put together this case. And they said that, that it would be, that it just, it's not possible uh, for for there not to have been any foreknowledge based on what they were able to say about this, these unusual stock trades, that there would be people that must have known ahead of time that these attacks were going to happen. Were they called in? By the no. no. Well, let me <laughs> ask you, so. was Larry Silverstein called in? To no. the commission. Now, talk about Larry Silverstein. He's very interesting. Yes. Uh, you know, Larry Silverstein, I'm not remembering whether there was a question about him by the families during the, uh, the, the questions to the 9-11 Commission, but I know that in 2007, when Lori Van Auken and Patty Casaza spoke at a uh, gathering of people in, in New York City about a new investigation for the a new 9-11 Commission, a new investigation, they listed among their 10 questions that they want to get addressed was to have Larry Silverstein brought before a new investigative body and, and say, why did it, why is it just, you just happened to decide to, to purchase uh, uh, the world, most of the buildings in the World Trade Center. He, I think he already had number, number seven before that, but, but he had one, two, and four, and five at least. And he got them, even though it was a white elephant, you've got uh, billions and billions of dollars that need to be spent on removing asbestos from the all the World Trade Center buildings, which would not be uh, make it an appealing purchase, and then he also just fortunately, luckily, decides to get uh, uh, terrorist insurance. And after the attacks, he well, just with, weeks before, weeks yeah, before, not just, like a long time before. Yeah, he, yeah, he had the foresight to get terrorist insurance, so he gets. Uh, 4.5 billion after the uh, attacks in, in insurance. And then after that, he wants to also go after the airlines separately for more insurance money. Well, and on top of that, during 9-11, he's, I mean, there's footage of him. Everybody's seen this famous footage of him telling, um, of him saying to pull building seven. Yes. Yeah, so, so he's, he says, uh, there was such a terrible loss of life uh, in the in the in the twin towers so they decided to pull uh, uh which means demolish in in uh 
in the slang for the for the demolition industry uh, to make the building uh, come down by controlled demolition. And I do show in my in the chapter chapter 19 that there's a, a lot to of, of usage of that term pull in relationship to lots of news articles uh, by uh, Mark Loizo and others in controlled demolition and other similar companies. And so uh, the families did want to know wh why would that terminology be used? And so uh, they wanted to have an investigation that the, that the 9 11 Commission completely left uh, un unexamined the matter of a 47-story uh, steel skyscraper um, falling to the ground in, in six and a half or seven seconds. Well, in order for that to happen, you have to set explosives in there for it to happen, especially if it falls in its own footprint. There have to be explosives. So the question is, what does Silverstein know about the placing of explosives in that building and prior, and for that matter, what does Giuliani know? Since his emergency team is in that building, yeah, on the twenty third, on yeah. the twenty third floor, it's uh, and he's uh, Giuliani. Uh, Gi Giuliani is like the cleanup guy. It seems like, like. but the just, World Trade Center crime scene cleanup guy. <laughs> That's the way I see him. Sorry. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, families have a range of perspectives on this from from choosing to accept the official account or being highly skeptical and wanting a new investigation, believing government complicity. But at a basic level, when you find out that Giuliani said to ABC on the day of the attacks that he was told 15 minutes before by his own people in the Office of Emergency Management that these buildings were going to collapse catastrophically. Where was he and where was his immediate uh, uh, senior staff in terms of getting on the phone, calling the Port Authority that was making all these announcements in the building, saying uh, to people who were running down the staircases, "Go, this is America, you are safe. Go back up to your office desks. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't stay in your office desk, you'll be fired. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, and the people yeah, that, yeah. that that decided to uh, ignore those announcements on the public system address system in the buildings. If the public address system, which was still working, um, uh, could have said, uh, you need to get out right away, we think the building's going to collapse, some, not everybody, but some more people would have gotten out, firefighters, occupants. Yeah. And, Go ahead. So there, there's that, I mean, just, just at that level, that's just, just is awful. And then also you Evil. have- it's evil. And then you also have um, uh, CIA director George Tennant is having a lovely breakfast uh, over at the St. Regis uh, Hotel uh, restaurant. And about 8.50 a.m., four minutes after the North Tower is struck, he's on a phone call. And soon into that phone call, maybe within a minute or two or five, he is voicing the opinion that the, that the attack, uh, the plane hitting the North Tower represents a terrorist attack by Osama bin Laden. Well, if he thinks so, in the view of the families, why, Mr. CIA Director, did you not then task someone in the CIA agency to phone the Port Authority and tell them to get everybody to evacuate the building? I mean, just well, on a basic level. Well, because he knew what time it was. I'm yeah, quite yeah. certain, given some all the things that he did that you that are in your book, he he definitely knew what time it was. And of course, he got a nice big shiny medal 
uh, from George Bush after 9-11 was was all said and done, you know. So, okay, so Giuliani was very interesting to me because, first of all, his office of emergency management, that was kind of a new office. It was yeah. it was set up fairly recently. Was it in 1999? It was 1999. Yeah, it was like this uh, marquee example of a, a bunker that was going to be. I mean, it was up in the 23rd floor, but even still, it was like bomb blast proof and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So in 1999, set up and now he's in charge of all things terrorism related or, you know, if there's a, an, a terrorist attack or. He's the guy in charge not, and he did not allow the FBI or FEMA to go to the pit where the rubble was to investigate. No, he wanted instead to have all of that, all that debris taken away as fast as possible and shipped off to China, South Korea and other places so that nobody could uh, really look at very much of the evidence. So. Now, if you're a real investigator and you really want to know what's going on and somebody does that, you call that spoiliation of evidence. Yeah. And, and you, you have taken evidence from a crime scene and you have destroyed it, hidden it, whatever. And that is a criminal offense. It is. And uh Fire Engineering, Ma Engineering Magazine editor Bill Manning wrote in his editorial in January of 2002 that the investigation that was going on was a farce and that all of this uh, taking away of the, of, the, of the scrap metal and the steel beams must stop immediately. And, uh, you know, well, and part before we I, I want to get back to that, I just want to say, because I love to name names when I'm doing these shows, I think it's important. George Tabik of the Port Authority of World Trade Center in New York City and New York City. He was the one who gave the order uh, to tell people in South Tower that there was no need to evacuate, go back to your offices. And he said that he got that order from Giuliani's office, from, yeah. from the Office of Emergency Management. OK, so now let's talk about and this you know, I find it very interesting that a lot of the family members or some of the family members do not want to look at, and you do in your book, the explosives evidence uh, uh, for 9-11, for the, you know, the explosives evidence that was left behind uh, at the World Trade Center. Could you, could you talk about that evidence and all the people who... A, either experienced the explosions or saw the molten, the yeah, molten feel. Sure. Um, so, so with the family's questions, I know that Patty Casaza has said that uh, in the documentary 9-11 Press for Truth, which I'd invite people to watch, which is all about, uh, about the Jersey Girls. Especially. Excellent, excellent yeah. documentary. Yeah. And she says in that, in that documentary that she got a, a phone call from her husband, John. And uh, in addition to saying goodbye, I love you, he also said he believed that there were bombs going off in the building. And there may have been others in the family steering committee that also heard uh, about, about things like that. But w a question they wanted the 9-11 Commission to investigate was look into, quote, reports of explosions at the World Trade Center, 
It was a neutral kind of question because they're not saying who might be responsible. They say, like, we're hearing about this. Please look into it. You had witnesses and first responders talking about it, you know, experiencing it. I mean, Willie Rodriguez being among the most famous of them, right? Yes, you've got all all these people are asking, uh, are giving testimony throughout the fall and winter. Uh, 503 first responders, firefighters, and EMTs with the Fire Department of New York are telling their superior officers what they did during the rescue efforts. In many cases, you have FBI present at those interviews. And and I understand that the 9-11 Commission knew about it. I don't know who all, maybe not all the commissioners knew, but certainly some key people did, but they chose not to really invest, really have, they have very few uh, first responders uh, testifying before the 9-11 Commission. So after the 9-11 Commission report comes out, uh, some family members, and I'm not sure exactly who, but some family members and the New York Times sues the city of New York to release the testimonies. Yeah, because they 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 suppressed that they wouldn't allow the public to see that that testimony. And you have to ask yourself why? Well, yeah. Yeah. So go you got 12,000 pages of testimony and it's a rather daunting thing. I think maybe as a in in um uh, tribute to the people who died, we can all take on the task of going to the August 12, 2005 uh, online uh archive of the New York Times and read one first responders testimony at a time of the 503 days in a row it would take you to get through 16 months of reading their testimony. And of those, you'll find about 118 who mentioned specifically uh, bombs, explosions, secondary devices, molten this or that going on. And and so it's it's very compelling. If you have one or two people saying this, maybe you could blow it off. But we have over 100 first responders, and they're, they're going to tell you exactly the truth after a most traumatic day when 343 of their, of their colleagues have died. They're going to tell the truth. Yeah, and they want to know what happened. They want to so, know what happened. So not one word in the 9-11 Commission report on any of this testimony about bombs, on any... I mean, there are pictures where you can see the molten... Uh, steel and the, and people need to understand that the reason why the molten steel is a big issue is because diesel doesn't burn anywhere near uh, at, at, at diesel could not melt steel fires can't melt steel by any I mean so low the 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 strength of the uh, you know the heat uh, of the heat but it's a- but the you know it's 2800 degrees Fahrenheit to melt steel so it's got to be some kind of ordinance. And the other thing that people reported that I thought was interesting that I didn't know until I read your book was they kept talking about how underground it was so hot. It was much hotter underground as if a lot of the heat generating whatever explosives, you know, it was like there's a, a heat signature that was still there. Yeah. And which went on for months. I mean, when when Bill Manning for wrote months. When, yeah, I went on. I, I think that there was I think when Bill Manning wrote his editorial in fire engineering, he mentions that this still in January of 2002, there were still hot, you know, molten and people were finding molten, uh, you know, metal flowing, you know, December in even into January of 2002. And and I think that this whole story about the the these uh, explosions uh 
was just a glaring example. If you've got uh, 43 reporters or news anchors reporting about this, most of them live, some of them sitting at their news desks, many local uh, New York affiliates, uh, CB, uh, S, ABC, NBC, and so on, reporting. And you've got these reporters interviewing first responders or other people leaving the building or, or themselves saying that there are explosions. And they're quite clear. These are separate events from a plane hitting a building. These are happening. Yes, it, before. Yeah, before. Before and actually after, because they, people were saying that they saw like, like, river, like rivers coming out of the side of the building after after a while too, right? Yeah, David Long, who was uh, about to go into a meeting in, the, I think, the North Tower, uh, happened to be late because he went to a, a coffee shop and grabbed a muffin or something. And, and thankfully, he did because uh, he could see that it was not a building he'd want to enter anymore, but he saw the strangest thing with, with uh, you know, for you know, 10 seconds or so, uh, what seems to be like flowing molten metal uh, way up high coming out of a building. He said, what's wrong with this building? And what's wrong with the building is that you've got Oreo Palmer, who's one of the firefighters, who's, who, who's tremendously strong, taking all of his gear, you know, 60 pounds of gear way up, going from the 40th floor with the elevator, climbing up to the 78th, 79th floor. And he's able to say that uh, most, you know, it's not, it's safe for his other colleagues to come. Firefighters can follow up behind him. He's not saying it's unsafe, uh, double, you know, uh, go back. It's not safe. He's saying it's safe. We have, we need a couple of hoses to put out some isolated pockets of fire. You also have people like Kevin Cosgrove, who was on the phone in the South Tower, I think, from uh, 944 for about 15 minutes. And he's talking on, from what I can gather, a landline. He's able to hold the receiver in his hand. It's not too hot. He's able, the cord from the phone to the wall and the jack are not too hot. Uh, and yet we're told that molten steel is melting. So it does, doesn't add up that you can have a phone receiver that's not too hot to hold, and yet steel that requires 28 degrees Fahrenheit to melt is melting. It just doesn't add up. Michael and Casey then wrote a memo saying that the FBI had been alerted to this. So clearly there was a cover-up going on and a, a suppression of this very important evidence. And Mark Rossini was there and he knew about it. But what was interesting was that he, nobody, none of the FBI people at uh, Alex station said, you know, the hell with this. I, I, you know, I'm sending that, I'm sending that information one way or another. No, they just, they just, uh, yeah. they decided yeah. to back down and they didn't, uh, you know, they're, they're concerned about all this fast tracking of visas, visas with, uh, you know, questions like, uh, you know, what year were you born? Not 1878. Yeah. Uh, uh, where, where will you be staying? No answer. Uh, uh, what, you know, all, all kinds of information left uh, on, you know, none of us in, in, in the, who's ever filled out an application for visa, a temporary visa, if you've traveled to another country that requires it, uh, would ever be able to get to that country if you left anything, uh, even your signature. Uh, exactly. You <laughs> exactly. No, they were obviously running an operation to get these people in. I mean, I, I, I don't think I don't think there's much question of that when you when you uh, you, you hear what Springman has to say that the, he was the uh, at the consulate in Jeddah 
that was very early on giving uh, <laughs> he, he called it the visas for terrorists program. But, yeah. you know, Colleen Rowley was trying to get access to Mosawi's computer in mm. Minnesota and the kibosh was put on her on her efforts high up in the FBI. So I asked, I mean, clearly, and, and we've talked earlier about FBI uh, making up, you know, making up stuff in Florida and so on. And I asked Rossini, I had, I interviewed Rossini and I said to him, I said, I mean, what's going on here? I mean, you see that there are all kinds of shenanigans. What do you make of it? And he just looked at me and he goes, well, you know, the house always wins. Oh. And I said, well, that's the big question, isn't it? Who's the house? Who's the house? And I thought to myself, that's the problem. That's the problem. Nobody at the FBI, nobody at the NSA, nobody at the FAA, nobody at NORAD, nobody at all these institutions paid for by our tax dollars. No, well, Mindy, Cli Mindy, Mindy Kleinberg uh, said uh, to a reporter uh, uh, one time, I think in 2004, when they were trying to get at least the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission uh, passed by Congress. And even though these are practical, common sense things you'd want to do if you follow the, the, the logic of, of at least having these recommendations passed, and Congress was resisting it all the way. And so she said, you know, we, we've been told by the 9-11 Commission that the reason that the attacks happened was because, quote, nobody was in charge. Do you believe that? No. I want to ask you something. I want to. And yeah, especially since uh, I'll tell you another thing that, you know, we didn't mention, but it's interesting. Another thing that Cheney did was when these ladies were pushing for an independent commission, he was calling up Congress people and threatening them, saying, you know, you will not do this. You will not promote this. So that's in your book, too, right? Yes. Yes. So yeah. what I want to ask you in the end is. I am trying to figure out how to what what picture comes into focus in your head after doing this book? What picture comes into my head is that uh, because of the way that this narrative has, uh, the dominant narrative has been running for now two decades, where people are told that if uh, they don't, if they question the official narrative that they are conspiracy theorists, that this dominant narrative has made people less able to psychologically question things that are really important. It should not be good enough when a president uh, says that, uh, an, that his alleged perpetrator, bin Laden, has done it, for him to simply say, we don't need, no, need any evidence, we know he's guilty. That should not be good enough. For, that, for, that should be a red flag. That should be a red flag. But what I'm really asking you is, to me, the details in this are breathtaking. And it's that it's that thing where what you have done is you have, you know, they talk about in art negative space. All 
all those questions are the unanswered, all those unanswered questions of the 9-11 family to me are the negative space. And what you did was you defined that negative space with all your research. And it kind of answered those questions, I feel, to some, to a great extent. And uh, what I'm asking you is, what is it that you have defined around that negative space? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think about the family steering committee and how they've been careful even the Jersey girls, Monica Lewinsky, they've never accused. Lewinsky? Uh, uh, no, sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Monica <laughs> Gabrielle. No, Monica Lewinsky was not involved in this at all. Um, <laughs> Monica Gabrielle and uh, Patty Casazza, Mindy Kleinberg, Kristen Breitweiser, um, Beverly Eckert, Sally Reagan-Hart, who especially have asked some tougher questions about different things. Uh, Mary Fetchett, certainly about the, the Port Authority and, and the buildings. But, they, they, but they've, never, they've never come out and said, we have a list of people in the government that we think need to be charged with treason or something. And I've had to listen to that restraint, as I'll, I'll call it. It might be we don't want to accuse anyone. We just want there to be a new investigation. We don't want to, to say anything in case uh, an investigation was sort of dismissed because we're being uh, too uh, hard hitting about what we think an investigation would show if it was done properly. But I think that what we're left with, what I'm left with is that uh, Patty Casaza says that she thinks that the, the, the hijackers were patsies. And I think that the idea of a, uh, a surprise attack is far-fetched and dubious and really not uh, credible. And so what uh, the world is left with and the American people are left with to chew on is, by degrees, what was this an attack that happened where people let it happen for knowledge? To what degree was this an attack where people orchestrated it? And I think that that is more where my evidence shows I don't go into the the to and fro of thinking uh, insofar as complicity, is it more the CIA or the FBI, or the FAA or the or the Department of Defense or or this or the vice president? Or I think that, uh, you know, one could guess and one could be wrong if there really was a true investigation. You could have certain people come forward as witnesses and show, shine the light on some things I don't know about. I feel like I'm learning new things all the time, even having re researched this book. Uh, you know, I watched your interview with uh, Daniel Hopsicker, and a lot of his information was brand new to me. Like, there's so much information for, for a person to absorb and discover. But I think that uh, that it ends up taking people to a very painful and damaging place. Look, if you don't look at a problem straight in the eye, you'll never fix it. And we'll keep going in this horrific direction that that we're going in. That is my my firm belief, you know, and I, I thought it was very interesting. What you just said brought this to mind, that FBI agent. Gonzalez, who recently said, I think that the that the terrorists had a network of supporters in the United States. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I wonder who he means. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that history shows that there have been times in the past in different nations 
where people wanted things to happen, wanted to go to war. And, and so uh, there needs to be uh, a real uh, switching up of, of an understanding that this does happen and has happened even in Gulf of Tonkin and other incidences in the past. And yes, I think well, that- I mean, look, I'm telling you if, you, if you as an investigator aren't suspicious of, you know, we need a new Pearl Harbor and then, you know, the same people uh, who need a new Pearl Harbor who, you know, all of a sudden they're in positions of power and this thing happens. If you're not at least suspicious, you know, and, and that's the thing. I think people have to, to break through that horrible, traumatic thought that, oh, my God, yeah. people in my own government are, you know. But when you look at qui bono, you know, who benefited? Yeah. I think that what you're talking about, the the psychological barrier or threshold to think that it would be possible for one's own government to be involved in orchestrating an attack on their own or with other governments somehow that would result in the deaths of nearly 3,000 people is too horrible. It's too horrible for, for many people to think about. And I've talked to people that have said that if, if that really was true, they, they would be depressed for the rest of their lives and they could never recover or they become an alcoholic. They've said things like that to me because, uh, you know, there was one woman who I think I did feature in, in my book who talks about a conversation with her brother who brings some information to her and she finally reads it and then just falls apart. Well, this is what I have to say, and this sounds may sound mean, and um, this comes from the movie with Cher. I forget what the name of it is. Moonstruck. Moonstruck. Oh yeah, Moonstruck. Yeah. Where? Where? Get over it. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. Yes. Yeah. Snap out of it. Listen, our 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 way of life is is you know look what's happened because. So much, you know, our, our civil liberties, trillions of dollars in wars and so on have happened because you don't want to wake up and smell the coffee and, and demand accountability. Come on, stop it. Stop, everybody. This is, this is something that you should, you know, that should get your blood boiling and make you want to go out there and do something. Don't, don't shrivel up. Yeah. Why shrivel up? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fight the I mean, fight. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that... Um, there are people who are starting to read my book, and I mean, I'm surprised, but I think over and over again, I shouldn't be surprised about anything because people have their lives. One person told me who just started reading my book this week, and they couldn't put it down So somebody with a PhD, uh, but they discovered in reading my book that the war in Afghanistan has something to do with 9-11. Oh, so okay. so I, 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 that's not my primary intent that's of writing hopeful. my book. That's, that's hopeful. hopeful. But, 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 but there, are, there are, are dots that a lot of people are not connecting because all they've seen is a, a quick headline in the newspaper or a quick uh, talk by some talking heads on, on some news network. And they make whatever meaning they can, but they haven't connected the dots. They haven't 
had to because they weren't on the family steering committee and had someone that had died that made them want to look through thousands of newspaper articles to try and put questions before the 9-11 commission to get to the bottom of it. And I think that if there was, hopefully, and this is what I asked for in my book at the end, to say, you know, I think that there really needs to be a new investigation. There are families, a minority of them, that are still asking for that, and that there needs to be uh, a coming clean uh, for truth and reconciliation or something for for the nation to move forward. I think that as, as long as there is uh, a story about September 11th, which is, in my view, a false narrative, that's going to hobble this country going forward for a long time. Oh, it already has. Yeah. Look what, I mean, it's cost us so much in blood and treasure. It's unbelievable. But my question to you then is, who is going to be the honest broker in charge of such a, an investigation? Who? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I, I only uh, suggest that a, a new investigation simply because there are families that are still asking for one. But maybe, maybe there needs to be an international body, but I don't know, because I'm aware that there are, uh, with the world's mightiest uh, superpower, that there are a lot of phone calls that can be made to, to uh, different uh, embassies and, and uh, around the world saying, we don't want um, you know, Spain or whoever might want to have a, a, a spearhead an investigation in September 11th or Japan. A few phone calls and a little bit of economic pressure can quickly put the kibosh on that. So I don't know that that's, maybe it's just left to miracle to see if who would investigate. Maybe a citizens group of some sort, perhaps with you heading it up. <laughs> With that, I'll, I'll just say this about what you've done here. You have truly honored the memory of those people, those victims, and the family members who are trying to get justice and accountability. You've done a brilliant job. Thank you very much. So thank you. Well, thank you. Well, I think that I think that uh, my hope is that that they know uh, the ones especially asking questions and the ones that are even satisfied with the answers they've been given, that they do know that that there are people uh, not just in America, but people around the world. We're all living in a post 9-11 world. In Canada, we lost one hundred and fifty nine soldiers in Afghanistan and um we had all those planes arriving in, in Newfoundland, 38 planes. And, you know, they're, they're, it, it's affecting people all around the world and still does, and, and especially in the Middle East. And so I think that, uh, that they need to know, especially the ones asking the tough questions, that those tough questions are going to hopefully still be asked by people generations from now. Uh, history is judging us. 9-11 crimes continue. That's what yeah. that is. But, yeah. you know, I think you've done a brilliant job of, of really bringing out the outlines of who did what. And uh, I thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. 